I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What is up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. This is episode two of the Half Hour Intern Awards for 2016, and in today's episode, we will only be going over two different awards. That is the career I'd most like to do and the hobby I'd most like to try. Uh, I feel like those are pretty important awards, so I wanted to kind of give them their own show. And uh, again, all of this is completely voted on by you guys, so this is the career that you would most like to do and the hobby that you would most like to try. What is absolutely fantastic is that every single nominee got votes. And for that matter, for the entire Half Hour Intern Awards, every single category of the Half Hour Intern Awards, every single nominee got voted. Like, at least once, usually more than once. There were, like, a lot of really close calls. In this very first one that we're going to do, the career I'd most like to do, there was a very close uh, race between the Movable Feast episode and the travel blogger episode which is so funny because they're very similar jobs basically getting paid to be abroad and to do different things abroad and have fun which of course people like of course that's what you guys want to do that's so it's just so funny that they were both so close and that they're both so similar of jobs and uh and the one that won out of the two of those is the travel blogger episode because it's probably the most direct way to make money while traveling and uh and getting to really explore an incredibly wide range of places So in this clip that I'm about to play from that episode, it's quite a long clip that I'm playing from both of these um, because I really wanted to explore what it is that that the person did that um that makes this job great and all that so in this clip from travel blogger which they take us from uh their inspiration to even become travel bloggers all the way through when they uh start the blog and then through when it they make their first viral video and it gets successful and stuff like that and then them really starting to think wow i think we can really do something with this so uh without further ado here is your winner for career i'd most like to do travel blogger so we always love to travel. And I mean, before we got married, we were taking trips, international trips to Mexico. We started, that was one of our first trips. And then we went to Thailand, Bali, um, New Zealand, or no, not New Zealand, but uh, South Africa. And one day Colette came home and said, you know what, Like, let's just, let's travel. And she was serious. We'd always joked about wanting to travel long term, but she was dead serious. And I was kind of taken aback and I said oh let me let me think about that and so what she had done is she listened to a podcast and it was Rolf Potts uh, who wrote the book Vagabonding yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) a lot of people have have heard that it was actually on Tim Ferriss Ferriss podcast podcast. yeah for sure so then I listened to the same podcast that she had listened to then like a day or two later on the way to work so I get to work I'm fully caffeinated and I really didn't have that much to do in the morning. And so I sent her probably three or four emails that said, okay, we're going. This is what we need to do before we leave. I had all these bullet points. And she was busy at work, and I'm blowing up her phone. And she's like, what's going on? And so <laughs> we came back You know, that night. We started talking about it together. And you know, we had some worries and some concerns about what we needed to do before we could actually take the trip. Um, one, you know, we had to make sure that we could actually rent out our house. 
And but then we kind of made a to do list and just started taking care of all the actions. And once we took care of the big items, like selling our cars and you know, renting out our house, we knew that it was all green lights from then on. That's so great. So you guys owned a home before this and you yeah. guys rented it out as soon as you guys left. Yeah. So like Scott said, that was our main concern because we had moved into our house in California seven months prior, which isn't exactly the best time. Okay. To wow. So that, that was going to be my question. I didn't want to be like too specific or too weird or whatever, but like, did you guys like, were, were you guys making money when you rented it out or were you like breaking even, or were you losing just a little bit of money every month? So we make a little bit of money each month. Okay, cool. Even like, even immediately right off the bat. Right. Yes. Okay. And that was, and actually that was, um, cause at first our concern was just to cover the mortgage and Colette being the smart one that she is just decided to throw it up for a little bit extra and people grabbed at it right away. Yeah. We had three offers on our place the first day we put it up. So Whoa, then we crazy. That, that fear we had, uh, was no longer present but so just for everyone listening to try to like crush any fears that they have in case they're wanting to do a similar thing had you guys just been at a break-even point you were still planning on doing it anyways correct that that was our biggest concern was we'd at least have to cover the mortgage but then when we went above it it made it a lot easier cool yeah for sure so where was the first place that you guys went when you're like all right we're getting out of here we took a flight to rio de janeiro brazil one way ticket. And, uh, I remember the nerves, you know, feeling that we had just left everything behind. We left, we sold a ton. We sold our cars, we sold clothing, electronics, everything we could. We had two backpacks on our backs and we were boarding onto that one way flight to Rio with just excitement and nerves and a feeling that you don't, really get that often as an adult. Oh my that gosh. Excited, don't know what's around the next corner type of feeling. And I think at that moment we knew that this is kind of what life's all about. Those scary, exciting butterfly in the belly moments. And if I could take a step back, one of the things while we were planning our trip, you know, we had several times, both of us, where we doubted what we were doing. I can clearly remember the day I left my job driving home and just having a fear that I should turn around right now and ask for my job back. But what I continue to have, and, and I, and Clet did as well, is we just had the vision of us boarding that first flight the, to visualize us with the backpacks on hopping onto the plane. And that was the biggest motivation for us to, to basically, you know, reassure all of our fears and getting on that flight down to Brazil. I still remember the first day we went out to kind of local expat bar and there was, I think the Copa cup was going on. And we were we met some friends and they were just blown away at what we were doing and the fact that it was our very first night and we were down in Rio. Yeah. Just an excellent experience. That's so awesome. Colette, I love how you mentioned the whole entire like butterfly in your belly moments and that that's not something that you get a lot as an adult. I, that's something I, I consider like pretty often is the, the, how those like those, those moments you unfortunately get like less and less as you get older. And it didn't really hit me until a couple weeks ago when I went to, uh, to Tulum, Mexico for a friend's wedding 
that every time I've gone out of the country for travel, like 100% of the time when you are in the airport and when you're on the plane and all that, it is totally one of those moments. And it's like, it's so difficult to get those moments as an adult, like you said, and it like, what a, what a gift that travel gives you as an adult that no matter how, even if you get really used to traveling, I would imagine, and I guess, so this is a question I should ask you guys, even if you get really used to traveling, if you're going to a new country that you've never been to before, is it still kind of that same feeling or is it like I've been to enough new countries that now I don't have that feeling anymore? Oh, I still get that feeling every time. It's, I, I mean, I get excited to, to add a number to my country list and also just to experience something new. I mean, the unknown is probably what keeps travelers coming back for more. So yeah, yeah I definitely still get the, the butterfly feeling, the first date feeling. Totally. <laughs> Part of that, man, it's, and there's so many like little things in that, that I love so much. Like something that I noticed, um, when we actually got back to America and like landed in an American airport is it was some like cheesy, like fifties looking diner, um, like chain restaurant, but they were smart and they had a, and it was in the international terminal and they had a, a sign out front all lit up. Like that said, like try an American beer. And I was like, that's so great because like, I remember when I went to Thailand for the first time being like, I got to try a Thai beer right now. And then it's like, I got to try a Thai coffee, you know? And it's like, like coffee and beer and stuff. It's like, you want to see how each culture does it, you know? And uh, it's like those little things are just so exciting. Definitely. Yes. I mean, that's, that's what makes it the travel so great is just trying all the local cuisines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's the quickest way to travel. Like since we've been back in America, I think if I'm, feeling a little wanderlusty, I'll, you know, go and grab a bottle of wine from Italy or go out for Thai food. And, you know, that, that taste, once it hits your lips, you go instantly back to that location. Yeah. That's so great. So Scott, you mentioned a little bit about like the fear that you were having, um, with quitting your job and all of that. Um, I would like to know if when you, when you guys left, like, what was your plan exactly? Like, was it just like a straight up vagabonding thing of like, all right, we're going to sell our stuff. We have some money in the bank right now. We're covering our expenses with uh, renting our place out. We'll just kind of travel for a while and we'll come back and we'll maybe get jobs when we come back. Or was there a thought process of maybe we will start blogging when we leave? Or, or like, it, you know, what, was there some sort of plan for the trip itself or was there no plan whatsoever? So a few things. So when it came to the jobs. I mean, we had planned that we were going to travel. What's actually funny is we couldn't count and we thought we were leaving for six months when in reality we had actually booked a seven month trip. So (laughs) that, uh, but yeah, the plan was to come back. Uh, Originally, I think we had talked about coming back towards the end of the holidays and then we would just go look for jobs. And before I had left, I'd actually just been kind of looking a little bit and I had a few offers and they came up right before we left. And so that actually gave me a little bit more confidence in that if we leave and we come back in six months, seven months, we can easily get jobs if we want to do that. Yeah. Since then, you know, our life has changed. Things have popped up. We've pursued different opportunities. And so that no longer is the plan. Um, I think what was what was the other part of the question? The uh, like so, so ba- yeah, yes. basically that. Like, did you guys have any any plan to be doing a blog when you left and, and all of that? Okay, so so to do the blog, we initially started that, and our thought was, okay, this, you know, we thought maybe we'll get uh, a few free hotel stays, and worst case, this is just a really nice 
diary for us to reflect back and store all of our travels and have this great memory. And if anything comes on top of that, that'll be great. And so that's really how we went into it. And the traveling, the actual planning of the route, we had two trips that were planned already. Uh, one was a family trip, and then one was our you know, typical American one-week vacation that we had planned uh, that was from um, Istanbul to Athens. And so I mean, the other trip was in Costa Rica. So our route then was determined that we had to go South America for about two months, and then Europe for two months, and then Asia for about two and a half, three months. And we all started, we basically, Clint and I just made a list of all the countries and sites that we wanted to see. And then we kind of cross-referenced those and then started making our itinerary based off of those two lists. That's awesome. I love it. So when did when did your audience start like picking up and what was like the growth of your audience over that time? Or did it not really grow at that time? And the story is not over and you guys did come back and you did get more jobs. And then like what happened exactly? <laughs> I think it was slow at first and we were just creating content for ourselves and for our families, but we love to do it. We love to experience a new culture and write about it and share it with our friends and family. And I still remember when we, we got our first, or no, we got our 300th follower and we thought that was a huge deal because at the time it was, I mean, we didn't know anything about the, the blogging world. So it was a slow growth, but, um, you know, we were pitching a lot of hotels because I was a writer and producer for TV. So I knew that I could write something I could video, we could be on camera for these people yeah. and maybe they'll give us a free stay out of it. You know, let's use our skills to our advantage and hopefully that will help pad our budget a little bit for travel. So we just took a chance and I knew the, the, uh, copy that we could provide and the, the content that we could provide would be of high quality. Now, I didn't have numbers to back myself up. So a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, that's nice. We get, you know, 100 of these emails a day. Come back when you have some numbers. So I think that was just kind of fuel to our fire. Of and we, now we, we need to grow this say, audience. Hey, we have the numbers. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but we don't even want to stay with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So was there some major thing that like major tipping point for your audience um, where, where you guys were like featured on some other site or like something happened that really caused your audience to explode? And again, like did, did any of this kind of like major growth, like, you know, to the numbers where you could start getting that you would frequently start getting free rooms or, or any sort of money would be coming in um, and stuff like that. Was this still during this first seven month trip that you guys took or is it on some subsequent trip that you guys took? I think, I don't remember the exact timing, but uh, I can remember a few events. But one of the biggest was, Clet had an idea just to make a compilation of all of our trips and kind of a, an about us video. And the video we posted on Facebook and just, it took off. It went completely viral. And it we on our page, it got up to I think three and a half million, maybe four million views. Wait, and then what? Five, yeah, and then Lad Bible picked it up. It actually had so much traffic, it crashed our website. And then, wait, so at the I, time I, that this thing got three and a half million views on YouTube, uh, I'm sorry, on Facebook, yeah. how, like how many, how how much traffic was your website getting at that time prior to this video? Prior to the video, it was probably like a hundred to two hundred views a day. I think. Wow, that's freaking crazy! And this took off, and so 
it was uh, that was probably one of the biggest things. And the lad. What happened? Well, hang on. What happened in this video? Like, did you guys get naked and you guys are both really good looking, or like what? What, what happened? Heard off. No, it was so we had a uh, we had part of it was so we did Devil's Pool in Zimbabwe, which is you're on top of Victoria Falls, I think 108 meters up. That was one part of it. It's just us as we've traveled. It's shots of us in Thailand. It's shots of us jumping into tropical waters. It's about all the experiences that we went through for the past, I believe it was around eight or nine months at the time when we posted that. And it was just our own personal story. And this is what we did. And these are the adventures we got into. And, you know, adventures are the best way to learn. And we did it together and we shared it and and people supported us in it in a way that we didn't even know it was possible. And Colette, you were the one that edited this video and stuff, like from your prior background? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and we were both shocked to hear some people, somebody was, I remember one of the top comments was a guy who said, I just quit my job to do this and my family thinks I'm crazy. I can't wait to show this to all of them and see that I'm not the only one doing this. That's so great. I love that. I love the way that that clip ends with Colette and Scott inspiring another guy to become a travel blogger as well. That's so cool. That's uh, one of my goals when I started this show was to be able to hopefully inspire people to go after something different that maybe they didn't know that they wanted to try or maybe they thought some things about it, but they didn't really know enough to really go after it. And uh, it's so nice to have people out there that are really inspiring people to make changes in their lives that maybe that they otherwise wouldn't make. And uh, yeah, so great great that Colette and Scott were able to do that for that guy. So anyways, we are going on to hobby I'd most like to try. And uh, again, all of the different nominees got uh, got votes here. But the one that, uh, that won over all the others is glass blowing. So this was a really, really cool episode with Josh Simpson. I have a clip here that starts with him talking about uh, learning how to glass blow, like his learning how to how to blow glass process, which is very roundabout and strange. Like he he learned to blow glass in the strangest way possible, in the coolest way possible. It's such a great story for how he got started, and then he brings it all the way up through right now, and then uh, and then just goes over exactly what glass blowing is and how it is that you do it. So without further ado, here is your winner for hobby that you would most like to try, which is glass blowing it quickly became apparent that if I built a glass furnace that they'd let me blow glass. Only, of course, I'd never built a glass furnace and I'd never taken a glass class. <laughs> and uh, But I did know something about building um, ceramic kills. And so I built my best approximation of what a glass furnace might look like. And it was a terrible furnace, but it actually worked for about three weeks. And uh, so... Um, Actually, a couple of other students helped build it, um, took a case of beer and a whole night to do it. And uh, and so we started to blow glass. And there was no teacher there, but I sort of had the, a general idea that you needed to gather molten glass up on the end of a blowpipe. And that's what I began to do. At the end of the month, um, I had to go back to Hamilton, but I barely felt like I had scratched the surface in learning to blow glass. And so I did something that my parents thought was beyond radical. Um, I dropped out of Hamilton College and I rented 50 acres of land for $22.50 a month. I came back home to my parents' house and I bought Dacron sail canvas and I sewed together a teepee 
And I moved back up to Vermont. And and by spring, by March, I had a teepee to live in. I set up that on the land that I'd rented, and I began to build a little studio that was 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet tall. And, uh, and I figured since I built my own glass or built a glass furnace at Goddard that I could do it again. And that's exactly what I did using um, recycled bricks. And um, so by April or May of that year, I had this tiny little glass studio. I mean, you know, telling the story, it's almost hard to believe, but this is exactly what I did. It's amazing. It makes you realize like the the path that you're on in life, how much of it these decisions need to be made just at the right time. And it's like they almost kind of come to you, you know? It's not like solely like you're just making them, but these things get laid out to you at the right time because obviously doing something like that in your 30s or your 40s is insane sounding. But when you're 20 and you're like Oh yeah, I'm just going to buy this uh canvas to make a teepee and throw it on this land. It's like why not? You know? Like why <laughs> exactly. not do that? And it's totally insane sounding now, but um that that set everything in motion for the entire rest of your life. It's incredible. Well, I it it I I even took my entire life savings out of the bank. That was $306 and I uh I used it to uh buy cement and uh, to pour a, a floor in the bottom of this uh, or in, on the floor of this studio that I built. And I used the rest of the money to buy a tin roof to go on the top. And and uh, all of the other materials were just sort of found or borrowed or bought. Uh, actually not bought, but I got them from uh, farmers uh, who had barns that or buildings that they didn't mind me taking down. Anyway, I began to make glass. Exactly a year later, I uh, I returned to Hamilton College, and um, by that time, my parents had kind of run out of money. Hamilton waived. It was an amazing story. They waived tuition, but they wouldn't waive room and board. And so I returned to Hamilton College and. Uh, on the back of my pickup truck, I brought teepee poles and my teepee, <laughs> and I set up my teepee in the forest behind the college. And I returned in Jan, or actually at the end of January, uh, a year later, and uh, I would ski into school each morning, and and I finished my one required course and graduated. Um, but after I graduated, I went back to Vermont and uh, and continued blowing glass there until. About 19, let's see, 1974, when I had to leave the land I was on, they wanted to sell it. 50 acres of land, they wanted to sell for $5,000. But I just didn't, I had no way to get that money. And so I had to leave. Um, And instead, I went to live at my grandfather's house in Connecticut. And uh, I built another small studio there. and from 74 till 76, I worked there. Um, and during that time, I began to actually build up real business records. And so people, a bank, for example, could see that I actually had, I was selling glass by <clears throat> making stuff in Vermont and driving 
south from Vermont to towards New York City, and I'd drive through different towns and look to the left and right and see if there was some place that might sell my work, and I'd just stop in and try to sell things. That's that's how I that's how I began. I love it. So let's uh, let's go back just a little bit, and I'd like to kind of analyze uh, your development of this. So you you lived on this land for a year kind of isolated um, and built your own your own studio and we're kind of teaching yourself to make glass at this time um, I'd love yeah. to know you, what your thoughts are on how taking that route and and the fact that when you went to that one college to take courses courses were no longer available and so this is what you ended up basically doing instead was spending a whole year of kind of teaching yourself to blow glass um, how did that do you think that that kind of changed the type of glass that you make today, the type of glass that you started making in the years after that? And do you think that there was sort of a value in being isolated during this learning phase rather than having somebody else tell you, this is the type of glass you should make. This is the way you should do it. This is the way it should look. Yeah. um, To say that I was living off the grid is, is like, I mean, I was really off the grid. I mean, there was no, there was no grid to start off with, but I was left up. uh, I was left entirely to my own sense of how to teach myself and how glass blowing is actually done. I had never seen it done. um, And, and I had no external influence on design, save except, uh, I don't know, seeing uh, ads in a newspaper or something like that. But, um, so what, what happened was it allowed me to really develop my own techniques and my own style and my own sense of design, um, in a way that, that, that would be almost impossible, um, today. And if I had gone to graduate school or I had gone to a factory to learn how to blow glass, I would have been making someone else's work or if I'd apprenticed to somebody, I would have been making somebody else's designs or learning uh, techniques from someone else. And I don't think I would have been able to develop such a a unique and different style of work. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking of the, the book in the movie, The Jungle Book. Where uh-huh. like if if a boy like Mowgli wants to go into society, they'd be like, "Why aren't you wearing a shirt? And why are you doing all these things?" You know, like he doesn't know that he's that different. Was it strange for you when you uh, later on met other glass blowers and you sto- you sort of saw their techniques and they saw your techniques, and were were they very different? Like the types of things that you guys were doing. Well, yeah, and actually. To be honest with you, there were things that there were simple solutions to common glass blowing problems. Like you make something, you've got this uh, stainless steel tube. Actually, I had iron tubes, but and on the end of that hollow tube, you gather this molten liquid and you shape it. Well, I didn't. At some point in time, you have to take the piece that you've made off that iron pipe or that stainless steel pipe. And you have to transfer it either to get it off and cool it, or you have to get it off and switch it around so you can work on the lip. I had no idea how to do that. And literally for six years, I struggled with that problem. I used a 
you know, I tried to cut glass with a hacksaw and I, I would pour water over it and which would shatter it, but it wouldn't do it very evenly. And I once, uh, literally six years after I, I started, I, I watched somebody do the most simple motion, which was to squeeze it with essentially a tweezer to squeeze it for a moment. And the cold tweezer, uh, propagated a tiny little crack and it broke off perfectly every time. And I don't know how many hundreds of pieces I had lost because I just didn't know that simple trick. So really after, after the fact, I mean, there were lots of tricks that I learned that, that, that other people had known for, you know, 10 centuries that I just hadn't managed to figure out by myself. So I have to say that I learned a lot by myself and there are things that I do that are very unique, like the way I gather molten glass um, um, is, is pretty unique, but, but more, I learned a lot by watching other people. And, and so I got, in fact, I got more by watching others than they probably got from watching me. Yeah, so you got to get some more of the uh, the traditional technique things down that uh, that were really useful, but still kind yeah. of hold on to your own art style. Exactly. What I got out of out of being you know off the grid was was a unique style, a unique way of thinking about stuff, and a, a pretty unique work ethic. Um, when I say that, I, I you know in some ways when I look back, I think I was almost the Bobby Fischer of glass blowing. Bobby Fischer <laughs> was this chess player who was who was pretty um, mono. I mean, he he was totally into chess, and I was utterly and completely lost in glass blowing. I worked. I, I, I'm not exaggerating at all when I say that I I worked literally seven days a week, 365 days a year probably for five or six years. Um, I, I would, I might stop, uh, you know, to visit my parents for an afternoon, uh, but then I'd be back at work. And it wasn't because it really wasn't because I had a, a strong work, work ethic per se, although I do. Um, it was more that I was just really insanely fascinated by this very challenging material. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that challenge. If you could go over some of the basics of glass blowing with us and things like how does the glass get its color and how does it get its shape and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Glass is uh, one of the most elemental of materials. It is essentially just sand. If you take if you go down to the beach and and shovel a bunch of sand into a bucket and throw it into a furnace, it will melt at about 3000 degrees and it will have the most classic Coke bottle green color imaginable. Um, and the green color, if you have very pure sand, it, it comes out to be, uh, it looks like clear glass. Most people, in fact, virtually everybody adds a flux that helps that sand melt. So it brings the melting temperature down to uh, all the way down to around 2000 degrees and from about 3000 degrees. And, uh, but so just sand and a flux and then a stabilizer like lime. And the fluxes can be anything like, uh, well, uh, lead will is a great flux. It sucks for the environment. 
but it makes a very pure glass or a very beautiful clear glass. Um, there are also fluxes like bone ash. That's literally uh, animal bone burned. Um, bone ash can be a flux. So can soda ash. That soda ash is a major component in laundry detergent. So, um, and you can also use borax. Borax makes uh, a glass that borax flux, sand and borax make a glass like Pyrex. Um, okay, so you're saying that the flux not only brings down the temperature that it needs to fire at, but it also will impact the color of it as well? It doesn't impact the color, but it does impact the melting temperature and the working properties of the glass. So I use uh, a glass that takes sand, soda ash, and lime, which is a stabilizer, and that gives me clear glass. If you want to make color in glass, you need to add some metallic oxide. So if you just take beach sand, it's contaminated with iron. There's iron all over the earth. And um, and so if you t- just take rust from a steel girder and throw that in with your glass, you'll get a beautiful green color. But you can, any metal, uh, whether it's uh, copper or cobalt or silver or manganese or molybdenum or even rare earths like neodymium and and gold uh platinum all of those uh, well actually platinum does isn't such a good colorizer but but any metal will make a color in glass and uh, you you need to take i use i extensively use uh silver as a color and, and it accounts for all of the blue colors and reds and yellows and uh, i just change uh, how i use that silver in my glass so sand soda ash and lime make clear glass adding any metallic oxide will will introduce color the only problem with introducing a metallic oxide is that everything that heats up cools down everything that heats up expands as it cools it contracts so if you just have clear glass, it expands at a certain rate. And as it cools down, it, 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 it contracts, uh, let's say, 95, 10 thousandths of an inch, a, a tiny little bit. But if you add a, a colorant, a, a metal like copper to the glass, and if I added copper carbonate, I'd make a beautiful turquoise blue color. But it also affects the linear coefficient of expansion of the glass. So the glass that I've added copper to, if I put it and mix it with clear glass, the two sometimes have a different, they, 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 they cool and contract at different rates and they'll shatter. Mm. And so you have to sort of adjust the formula of the colored glass and adjust the formula of the clear so the two stay happy with each other. And that's, that's where you get, glass is so weird because you need to kind of be uh, well, a chemist would be great, except there the high temperature part of it adds a certain amount of alchemy to the whole process. So, right, um, you have to be an artist, but then you have to be a technician as well at the same time, and a and a and a scientist to some extent. 
So that is it for episode two of the 2016 Half Hour Intern Awards. Next Thursday, we will be having the final episode of the 2016 Half Hour Intern Awards, which uh, is actually my personal favorite out of all the, tw- out of all the uh, I should say, the awards episodes in general, because last, w- last year we did it the exact same way, um, which for the final episode, we save it for best advice, best story and favorite episode of the entire year. So uh, we have a couple of great stories nominated for the best story. We have some amazing advice that people have given throughout the year nominated for best advice. And favorite episode, um, there were no nominees. It was just a write-in. So you guys were all allowed to just write in what you thought was your favorite episode of the entire year. And we got a ton of different write-ins. It wasn't like, oh, there's like four or five that everyone seemed to... uh, uh, go after it was it was rare that any episode got more than two votes because of how many people wrote in different episodes um, which is absolutely fantastic i love that so anyways look forward to that next week and we will be having a new episode out on monday as well thanks so much for listening